the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. More news out of the Southern Baptist Convention, and then words from Tony Evans about what's going on in America. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Thursday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Uh, My normal co-host, Aubrey Sampson, is out enjoying some uh, time away. She will be back with us tomorrow. Uh, But I'm glad to be here with you today as we continue on this week. If you've missed any of our shows this week, let me encourage you to go get the podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Just subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Well, one of the things that Aubrey and I have been talking a lot about, and gosh, it goes back all the way to Ian and I talking about it back when Ian was here, is uh, the ongoing uh, sexual abuse investigations and scandals in the Southern Baptist Convention. The reason that this is such an important story or one of the many reasons for people who aren't in the Southern Baptist is that the Southern Baptist uh, Convention is the largest uh, uh, denomination. Easy word for me to say. They're the largest denomination uh, in Protestantism. And so uh, what's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention uh, shapes a lot of people's views of evangelicalism and of Christianity, but it also uh, would be foolish to say these things aren't going on in other places as well. And so recently there was the bombshell guidepost report that came out, uh, in fact, with a list of people uh, who had been credibly accused of sexual abuse. And uh, so it was a a real bombshell within the Southern Baptist Convention, kind of even bigger than I think most people thought it would be. And now the question is, what do you do with all of this? What are the reforms that happen? What are the reforms that happen uh, what are what are the next steps? And as is always the case, uh, some people are pushing back and some people, you know, there's different ways that people are looking about this. And there's a North Carolina lawyer named Joe Knott who has done a lot of work with the Southern Baptist Convention. In fact, he's a longtime committee member of the executive committee. Uh, and he said in fiery comments in a meeting last Thursday, a week ago, that uh, a member of the Southern Baptist Convention, that's being Joe not warned that taking steps to prevent abuse in churches would lead to ruin. Uh, he warned that trying to prevent abuse will destroy the mission and that the SBC should focus on fighting sin rather than addressing issues like abuse. And this is kind of emblematic of, of, of some of the response that's been happening to the sexual abuse scandal with the Southern Baptist Convention. I even read somewhere where there's some people who are taking this stance that the money going towards dealing with the sexual abuse scandal would be better used going towards missions. And friends, I think that just misses the, um, the gravity of what is being dealt with here and the importance of making restitution, 
of making things right, but also making sure these things don't happen again. To put it bluntly, you don't have a mission if there are people committing abuses within your church. You've got to rot that, you've got to, you've got to dig that rot, that sin out. It's like going to the dentist and going, ah, we're just going to ignore that cavity because it's a little... Uh, too, uh, it's a little too painful. Why don't you just clean my teeth? Well, if you don't deal with that cavity, it doesn't matter how nice the other teeth look or how nice the tooth looks. It's as if Jesus's words still fit today to what he said to the Pharisees when Jesus said, uh, hey, you're like a whitewashed tomb, beautiful on the outside, but full of death and decay on the inside. Deal with what is on the inside. I would t- I would suggest to people that this is not an issue of sexual abuse or missions, but that the only way to give credibility to the to the Southern Baptist name as they're going out on mission and to mission fields is to deal with this sin and to deal with this abuse. And I don't know, it's interesting to see the people who are running to um, hey, we just got to not deal with this as much as we are currently dealing with it. That's that's problematic to me. So I would say that the Southern Baptist Convention uh, needs to keep moving forward with this. Uh, there is the chair of the executive committee, California Pastor Roland Slade. Uh, uh, he said this, I don't want us to say, well, we didn't have enough money, and so we therefore didn't protect the little one that was vulnerable. I know it can't be about the money It's got to be about the people. Slade supported the abuse investigation, uh, including the decision to waive attorney-client privilege, which allowed investigators to seek communication between committee staffers and their lawyers. That became crucial to the investigation. And so uh, I wonder where this is heading next. This is uh, getting ugly. It has been ugly. Getting ugly. It has been awful. Uh, and hopefully the the sin is being dug out, and then that only fuels the mission, and it only fuels missions going forward. I want to touch on another story, something that we talked about, uh, I think, two days ago. Uh, it was the story from the Tampa Rays, the baseball team, and the seven players, I believe, who refused to wear the gay pride uniform, or, or the decals on their uniform. They said they just didn't feel comfortable wearing the rainbow and so they didn't, uh, and they, they attributed it to their Christian faith. Uh, and so it was at least five members saying their faith and their Christian beliefs prevent them from participating in the specific event. And this has gone a bit crazy right now. And they tried to say that we want this to be a family-friendly place. We're not saying we don't want people. We just don't want to wear uh, the emblem, the, the, the rainbow. And, and this is becoming people outside of the church, I would say, that I've seen. Sports writers and others are calling these guys bigots. They're saying this is uh, crazy. And and what I'm not understanding in this story uh, is this. Why is it bigotry to say I don't want to wear like, um, you know, a rainbow? Like, I, I, I think we've taken that word too far there. It reminds me, those of you who are Seinfeld fans, and not to make too much light of this, but those of you who are Seinfeld fans, uh, it was the time that uh, Kramer wouldn't wear the ribbon during the walk. <laughs> and, and they said, you're going to wear the ribbon. And then he gets beat up. That's what this feels like here. They're not even saying that we uh, are, are steadfastly want to be against people in the LGBTQ community. That's not even what they're saying. They're saying our faith informs this one way. 
Uh, we're not trying to be judgmental or to look down, but we also don't want to wear this that, that says we are fully supportive of this. Uh, Sarah Spain, who's a, a commentator on ESPN, she went nuts on them uh, on Twitter. Uh, some other people went crazy on them. And, and I would just suggest that I don't think that it is tolerance to say we're going to make them wear what they don't feel comfortable wearing. I, I don't know. I, I am sure people would say this is apples and oranges, but on some level, it's to me, it's like if there was Christian night at whatever ballpark and therefore all the players had to wear crosses. I, I, I wouldn't support that. I would say that's not right. And so in the some way, the, these guys are being painted as being super judgmental and super bigoted and all this stuff. And, and I think we need to see this for what it is. And I think we as Christians also need to understand that this is where culture is heading, that it's not enough to say I'm not judgmental, but I don't agree. And therefore I won't wear this. It's if you don't wear this, if you don't wave this flag, if you don't say all the right words, then you are a bigot. You are this. This is where our culture is heading. And I find it problematic and um, kind of strange that they are getting so much blowback just simply for not wearing um, the rainbow flag on their uniform. So we'll see where this heads and if we see more stories like this. Well, if you uh, used to listen to the show, if you've listened for a while, uh, he has gotten super busy now, but we used to have Dallas Jenkins on the show all the time. In fact, he used to come on with Ian and I and do something called Media Mondays. And at that point, he was talking about a show that he was producing and created called The Chosen that hadn't hadn't gone out yet. It was in its infancy stages. And so I always love reading stories about The Chosen because I feel like we were at the uh, the the beginnings of it when Dallas would come in here. And The Chosen, if you've not watched it, it's phenomenal. Like, it really is. And like everything in our world, there's some people who have problems with it. But I think it brings the words of, of the scriptures to life and allows us to, to get a, a, an artistic kind of picture of who Jesus was, who his disciples were, what some of these stories, uh, you know, whether it be the story of the Samaritan woman or of Mary Magdalene or of Zacchaeus, uh, not Zacchaeus, but Nicodemus, whatever else it might be, I think it, they're great. The, well, the chosen had a milestone recently as it passed 400 million worldwide views during the past month, according to new data from its studio. And it also shows the project is a viral sensation in other countries, such as Brazil. As of Thursday, the series had been viewed 405,268,000 times worldwide. Uh, They put on their Facebook page, you did it. Thank you for getting us that much closer to a billion that's apparently the goal. The series is a global phenomenon. In Brazil last month, month, the series app entered Apple's top 10 among the most popular free apps. It has been viewed nearly 70 million times in that country, according to data. Uh, it's also the app's community room included messages from viewers in Mexico, Colombia, Nigeria, New Zealand, and India. And so uh, st- uh, season three is currently being filmed, but I just wanted to celebrate it. It's good news when something like The Chosen, uh, that I think is a good endeavor, is having all of these views. Dallas Jenkins himself is quoted as saying, God is really doing something immense. And the proof of that it's God's driven is in the fact that uh, what they're saying is, I'm reading my Bible more than ever. I'm praying more than ever. My relationship with Jesus has been reinvigorated more than ever. Every now and then, it's good just to be reminded of why we're doing that. So I want to cheer Dallas on, old friend of the show, and say, great job, man. Keep it up. 
And if you've never seen The Chosen out there, go check it out. Uh, it really is. It doesn't replace the Bible. Okay? That's the important thing. Some people, uh, that's their, their takeaway from it. Like, oh, we should be reading our Bible. Yes. And Dallas would tell you, read your Bible. And that this show <clears throat> can point you to reading your Bible. Uh, but it doesn't need to be an either or. Use it like you use a commentary, right? To kind of uh, help you understand or, or give life or imagination to what it is that you are reading. And uh, uh, good job. So just encouraged by that. Well, Tony Evans, well-known pastor out of Dallas, Texas. Uh, he also has a show here on AM 1160. Tony Evans uh, in an interview with the Christian Post, he sat down with the Christian Post, and he said that America is, in his opinion, facing God's judgment because Christians are failing to represent God's kingdom. Let me read to you a little bit of what Tony Evans had to say in this interview. He claimed that the declining morality and growing societal issues in the United States have to do with Christians being more, quote, cultural than, quote, biblical. He says our identity is to be rooted in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. But we've gotten so ingrained in the thinking of the culture that we wind up being parakeets to what the society is saying rather than taking a solid, loving, but a clear stance of what God is saying. Uh, He is promoting a new book, uh, an updated version, I should say, of his 2015 book, Oneness Embraced, A Kingdom Approach to Race, Reconciliation, and Justice. He says, from womb to tomb, God identifies the person as a bearer of the image of God, so much so that James 3.9 says that you can't even curse a person because they were created in the image of God. The dignity of every human being has to be held in the highest standard, lest you insult God. And when you understand that that is how God made us and that uh, is how he wants us to relate, God is not colorblind. He's just not blinded by color. He recognizes and has created the uniqueness of the cultures in which we are born and the ethnicities, but he never wants that to be the deciding factor for a decision-making in our lives. He also contended that it is idolatry, idolatrous to elevate things like identity, race, or national allegiance over Christianity. He says whenever that national allegiance causes you to have non-Christian perspectives underneath the flag, then what you have done is you've created a national idol that God must resist, reject, and judge. And so he keeps going on and on here in the interview. Uh, I'll read some more of it later, but I love what he's having to say there. Tony Evans is putting the burden on us as Christians. He's putting the burden in our laps to say, no, no, we need to be biblical. We need to be preaching the gospel. We need to not be, in his words, parakeeting society. But instead, we need to be looking to what God says about the Imago Dei. I love the Imago Dei here imagery, the image of God, that regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of socioeconomics, regardless of ethnicities, that every person you come across is created in the image of God and therefore must be treated that way. Uh, Evans urged Christians to practice reconciliation and unity including those of other cultures and ethnicities, without compromising the essentials of the faith. He said, from God's throne comes righteousness and judgment, justice. Righteousness is the standard of right and wrong that is established by God. Justice is the equitable application of God's moral law applied in society. So one is vertical obedience and the other is a horizontal relationship. And whenever you have the vertical and the horizontal, you can have the cross. He goes on to say, 
The way you know you're being serious about the conflicts in the culture is that you are visibly and verbally involved in reconciling things that have been historically divided. If all we're doing is discussion, discussing our division and not creating the windshield of reconciliation because we're living in the rearview mirror of our past history, we will not be moving where God is moving. And if we're not moving where God is moving, we're moving by ourselves. Those are some Good words from Tony Evans. And I would say this, how are you doing it? Reconciling and bringing God's reconciliation, God's justice, God's Imago Dei into our culture that is so divided. We are. We're divided along lines of race. We're divided along lines of politics. We're divided along lines of gender. We're divided along so many lines in our culture. And the picture that Tony Evans, at least here, is trying to paint is that we are to be reconcilers. We are to be justice makers. We are to be uh, bridge builders, uh, taking our call and our marching orders, not from culture, but from the Bible. Seeing people with the Imago Dei and treating people that way, but also calling people to be that way. And that that's not really how our culture goes. I wonder what you think about what Tony Evans had to say. Uh, good words there from him. Pick up his book there that he was talking about. May we go from our, our day-to-day lives viewing everybody we come in contact with as created in the very image of God, the Imago Dei. If there are places where you are treating people as less than you because of their race, because of their economics, because of their gender, because of their ethnicity, whatever else it might be, that is not biblical. May the church be people who uphold the Imago Dei in all people and who treat people and who go about our days like that. Thank you for good words there from Tony Evans. Well, Tim Keller, that name has been in the news uh, so much lately, Uh, particularly he hasn't changed, but kind of people are reading his stuff and are pushing back against him because Tim Keller likes to speak of a third way. He likes to speak of that that we as Christians are not called to be Republicans or Democrats, conservative or progressive. There's a third way of Jesus. Tim Keller also speaks regularly of the winsome approach of the that that we are to be bridge builders, that we are to be um, people of civility, that we are to be winsome, uh, so that in our our just our posture towards people who may disagree with us. Uh, they w- might still be one to Christ. They still might become interested. He's planted churches that way. Tim Keller has written more books than I've ever read in my life. He started a Redeemer uh, Church in in Manhattan, in New York, and that is now multiple churches. He's no longer the pastor there. He's retired. Uh, but he's also very um, active on Twitter. And so Justin Taylor, uh, who blogs at Between Two Worlds and Evangelical History, he's a writer Uh, and um, kind of pretty well-known in the Christian world. He says, I think there's an interesting observation made by Tim Keller regarding a cultural dynamic at play. And then Taylor is going to unpack this a little bit uh, on a bit of a Twitter thread. But let me read what, what Keller wrote. Keller said, Many have made racism and prejudice virtually the only thing they will still call a, quote, sin. And they often lay the guilt for the sin of racism at the doorstep of those who are social conservatives. Because of that, many who identify themselves as conservatives simply don't want to hear about racism anymore. They give lip service to it being a sin, but they associate any sustained denunciation of racism with the liberal or secular systems of thought. That's a lot there. In fact, let me read it again. 
Many have made racism and prejudice virtually the only thing they will call a sin, and they often lay the guilt for the sin of racism at the doorstep for those who are social conservatives. Because of that, many who identify themselves as conservatives simply don't want to hear about racism anymore. They give lip service to it being a sin, but they associate the, uh, but they associate any sustained denunciation of racism with the liberal or secular systems of sin. Uh, Justin Taylor goes on to say, one of the ironies is that the more people are told that everything they do is racist, the more racially insensitive they become. He says, I think the PCA, uh, that being the Presbyterian Church, has offered a good working definition of racism, which is an explicit or implicit belief or practice that qualitatively distinguishes or values one race over another. He says racism can have three forms. Racial dogma, racial prejudice, and racial dominance. In all three forms, racial identity becomes a value having priority over these assessments of social judgment and racial solidarity is practiced as an ethical principle. So what are they saying here? It's this. Uh, Keller is basically saying when, when everything is racist, when everything I should say is about racism, and that social conservatives are regularly being told that they are racist, then then the conversation is is kind of rejected about talking about racism at all. Keller, you know, if you listen to him or you read his writings, he thinks racism, and he's he has ministered in New York City for decades, and he very much says that the issue of racism is a major issue culturally and within the church. So Keller is far from one of the people who wants to say, ah, don't worry about it. Racism is not a big thing. We talk too much about racism. But he is he is concerned, though, uh, that everything is being called racism, that everything uh, is under that umbrella and often laid at the groundwork at the um, at the doorstep of social conservatives. He would call himself a social conservative. And because of that. Many people who call themselves social conservatives simply don't want to hear about racism anymore. And therefore, the important conversations that need to happen aren't happening around race. So Keller wants to say that, and that's where Justin Taylor said the irony is that more people are told that everything they do is racist, that therefore they don't want to have the conversation anymore. Uh, And they become more racially insensitive. That the more people are told that they're racist, that uh, ironically, they become more racist. And so what Keller is saying and what Taylor is saying here is, can we identify the actual issues of race that the church needs to be discussing rather than calling either everything racist or nothing racist? Everything's racism or nothing is racism. And that's something we've brought up on this show before, uh, that there are certain times where people have said, hey, this reading of scripture or this thing is racist, and if you believe it, then you're racist, and you're going, I, I don't actually think that that's true, but that, that you're not really feeling the ability to push back against. I think Keller's trying to say, can we have the difficult conversations about racism without calling everything racism or nothing racism? If you're one of these people who sees race in everything, I don't think that that is helpful. But if you're one of these people who says racism is not an issue— you're categorically wrong. If you're one of these people who says race is not an issue within the church, you're categorically wrong. And it doesn't have to be. In fact, it can't be an all or nothing conversation. Um, I'm thankful for Tim Keller. I can't believe that he's one of the people in the crosshairs right now for people who are uh, really conservative and fundamental um, fundamentalists, that he is one of the issues for people. I, I, I just can't. Um, 
Man, I just can't understand it. I, I did want to highlight one other thing. When we talk a lot here about abortion and what's going on culturally, uh, I saw this tweet about um, from yesterday, a, a man by the name of Paul Sanchez, uh, who has got a locally a pregnancy center, a crisis local pregnancy center. And he has pictures of uh, all this vandalism that happened at a pregnancy center about a mile from their church. He says, when I was there a few weeks ago, we actually talked about the concern that something like this might happen. And here we are. I know the staff would be grateful for your prayer today, asking you to pray for this crisis pregnancy center. This abortion conversation has gotten so out of hand and has lost its centering so much that people who are, quote unquote, pro-choice are, are vandalizing pregnancy centers where women can go and be given a choice or at least be encouraged to make the choice to have a baby. What does it say about the pro-choice movement? I'd say the pro-abortion movement right now. That crisis pregnancy centers are being vandalized. I, I, I think that says all you need to know about where the direction of this conversation is going. That crisis pregnancy centers are being vandalized across the country. I think is deplorable, is despicable, and is where we are. When we talk on this show about this being like a, an increasing hostility in that um, that also that people are not raising this as a, wow, we want abortions to be minimized, but that we still want them to be available. That what used to be the pro-choice mantra. That's not true anymore. And you want to know why I believe that? Because crisis pregnancy centers are now being vandalized. Just craziness, craziness. All right. We talk a lot about mission uh, evangelism. How are we as the church going to creatively and faithfully share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the world around us? Yesterday, I closed the show talking about First Peter chapter 2, and I said, our greatest evangelistic tool, the number one evangelistic tool that we have is the character of our own lives, our day-to-day lives. That's what First Peter chapter 2 verses 11 through 12 basically says, live such good lives among the pagans. Uh, that though they accuse you, you uh, they see your good life, uh, the life well lived, and they will glorify God on the day he visits, on the day he returns. But I want to talk strategy. Like how do what, – what is the, 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 the tip of the spear now? What is the new frontier? What is – does evangelism look like, right? There was a season, a generation where it was festivals. Uh, think uh, crusades. Think Billy Graham. And those still go on now. Uh, but that that was the primary methodology. Uh, then came television and radio that overlapped with it. Uh, you know, the TV preacher preaching the gospel, being able to get it out over radio and over television uh, to many more people than you could to be physically in a building. Well, over at church leaders, uh, they've got a, a, an interesting um, a thought here. And it says this, TikTok. Could algorithm-based evangelism be a bigger opportunity for the gospel than radio and television combined? Says this, social media has changed forever with the rise of TikTok, which is now officially the most opened app and watched app in the social media ecosystem. It has become so successful that Meta, which is Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter – have altered the way they function in order to maintain their footing, and that's a good thing for the gospel. First, 
this author says, a bit of my experience as an evangelist on TikTok. This person is a TikTok evangelist. When I jumped on in July of 2021, I was skeptical, seeing the constant money grab and little return on investment. Immediately, however, I began to see results, real impact, and a loyal following of brand new believers hungry to devour God's word. As I write this, the author says, I've had over 50 million views, 400,000 followers, 4 million likes, and most importantly, 140,000 indications for a decision for Christ. Certainly, not all of those decisions are real or first-time decisions, but even if that number is a sliver of the total, this has changed the gospel communication for me forever. And so this author, uh, by the name of R. York Moore, is now going to go on and say, here are five things I've learned that can be applied to many, if not all, algorithm-based platforms for your ministry. So TikTok, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Uh, All of these, okay? Social media. But before we get into this list by more, uh, does that surprise you? I mean, you hear those numbers and uh, they are just um, mind-boggling. But it does tell you about the reach of social media. And I do appreciate the the caveat there, 140,000 decisions for Christ. And he says... Even if that number is actually truly just a sliver, praise Jesus. Like, what if that number is actually 14,000? So just, you know, uh, a tenth. Praise God. Like, that's crazy, 140,000. And so I I wanted to read this article to get some understanding. What does... um, what does this look like? What does algorithm-based evangelism look like? What could algorithm-based apologetics look like? What does algorithm-based uh, Bible teaching look like? He says this, here are five things I've learned that can be applied to many, if not all, algorithm-based platforms for your ministry. The first is metrics. The first is metrics. Uh, the algorithm only cares about one thing, watch time that converts to followers. With the data I get from TikTok, I can objectively see when viewers scroll away, how many watch to the end, and with clear calls to action, I can see exactly how many are responding to the gospel in the comment section. Clear metrics are good for me, but they are also really all the algorithm cares about, except, of course, obeying the terms of service. Because I have a clear call to repentance and ask viewers to indicate their decision for Christ, I get comments like this every day. It says, I prayed the prayer and I'm shaking. I've never felt anything like this. I'm crying my eyes out. So you have the ability to track. You have the ability for metrics. Next, consistency. The algorithm wants consistency in messaging and content. He says, I post three to five short videos a day on a variety of things, mostly basic doctrines of sin, judgment, righteousness, and I address common struggles like pornography, anxiety, fears, family pressures, and the like. The algorithm can depend on my account to provide fresh, engaging content on a specific niche, which is Christianity, and in turn, it pushes my content to the For You page. Normally, over 80% of the views on his posts are not coming specifically from followers, but from views on people's curated For You pages. That's fascinating. Next is value. He says, I have a very consistent following base I can push private content to and go deeper in discipleship with because I provide something unique in their lives. Biblical teaching with an evangelistic edge. Uh, I wake up uh, to comments like this essentially every day about the value of it. And the main reason is I provide a distinct value in the forum. 
Next, residual return. Says this, I've spent nearly 30 years traveling the world preaching Christ. Countless hours hoping when I got to the destination there would be people to preach to, that there would be fruit. I never give that up, but there has not been a single day where I've not seen decisions for Christ on TikTok. That is, man, that blows my mind. That is unbelievable. Uh, Number five, spiritual powers and authority. Just like in-person preaching, gospel proclamation engages powers and principalities in digital spaces and requires the evangelist to rely on the Holy Spirit and focus on the authority of Scripture and the gospel. This is one of the many ways my account, he says, has prospered and suffered some persecution. There are real people on the other side, uh, and the enemy is at work in them and through them to thwart the gospel. He says, while I could teach a seminar on how the algorithm works and the tricks of the trade, none of that is nearly as important as the power of the word of God. It is unstoppable. God is using TikTok in a powerful way to reach Gen Z with the gospel. Gen Z is not tuning into Christian radio. I I would like to think that they are turning into some, some, but not in these numbers or satellite TV. The eyes and ears right now are undoubtedly on TikTok in Gen Z. And so this is where we bring the unction of the spirit and the living God. That's a, I was fascinated by this article, just by the simple numbers, by the sheer volume, but also by the creativity. What are the new, um, what are the, uh, the new venues for evangelism? Sometimes we need uh, uh, new wineskins, right? Not new messages, but new messaging, new frontiers. And uh, this, this evangelist may very well be right. TikTok could be the spot. TikTok could be it. Facebook could be it. And people are using it for good, for the, the advancement of the gospel, and people are using it for bad. So how will we creatively evangelize? How are you going to creatively try to reach your neighbors? That is our calling. It has always been our calling. It continues to be our calling. Uh, there's many pastors culturally that— um, they've got bigger platforms, right? Through their books, through their speaking. And one of those is David Platt. David Platt um, wrote Radical. Now, Radical is a convicting book. It is a book that you're like, I don't know if I want to keep reading this. But really, he wants to challenge the church and Christ followers to live on mission and to get rid of the things that are um, that are cultural that might be just you know part of american uh, uh, the american experience or whatever but that aren't biblical or or help us advance the mission so david platt is constantly calling people to radical devotion radical christ followership radical 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 and uh, his organization is called radical and it says we exist to help equip the church to be on mission and so uh, at their at their twitter handle he'll post videos and i saw a video that i want you to listen to uh, David Platt asks this question, like, uh, what are we going to do? We have a choice to make with, with our bodies. And I want you to hear what he has to say, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. Listen to what David Platt has to say. We are so driven today by whatever can bring our bodies the most pleasure. What can we see, touch, do, eat, listen to, engage in? We're drowning in a culture that shouts at every turn, please your body. And the Bible's saying at every turn, please God with your body. So you're going to please your body or please God? That's a fundamental question, maybe the fundamental question, because this question is at the root of every other question we might ask when it comes to sexuality. The fundamental starting place is asking, what is our ultimate aim? Are we living for self-gratification in our bodies? 
or are we living for God glorification in our bodies? Because God is saying, your body is not ultimately for you. Your body is ultimately for me. So he says, we're driven today by whatever brings us the most pleasure. What can we see, touch, do, eat, listen to, engage in? And it's all about, um, at every turn, what can I do to please myself? He says, to please uh, my body. And he says, but in contrast, the Bible says, please God with your body. And that that is the choice that we have to make. That the fundamental question is, uh, at the root of every question that we have to ask ourselves is, am I pleasing God or am I looking to please myself with my body, with my choices, with everything else? He, he brings up the example of sexuality. He says in sexuality, uh, is sexuality something just for me and that, that it's for self-gratification? It is just for uh, my own pleasure that my body is for myself or is it for God glorification in our bodies, that, that our bodies are for him, that our my aim with my body, with my life, with my devotion, with my obedience is to glorify God. It is to primarily glorify God. This is our choice. Am I living for God glorification or self-gratification? And part of under that umbrella of self-gratification is self-glorification, uh, all of it, like raising my, I, do I, so it's not just with our bodies, but it's also, am I living to make much of myself or am I living to make much of Jesus? Do I want people to look at my life? Ah, here, here's a great way to think about this. Um, am I looking to live my life as an ambassador of Jesus Christ? Because that's what we're called to be. And what do ambassadors do? Ambassadors serve to magnify the king, to speak for the king, to represent the king. Or in our case here in America, since we don't have a king, they speak for the president. They speak for the nation, for Congress, whatever else it might be. They don't speak for themselves, but they instead are pointing to somebody or something greater. That ambassador language is what is used to describe our role as Christians. I am Christ's ambassador, and that I exist to point people to Jesus, that when people look at me and hear me and rub up against me, they're getting an idea of who Jesus is. They're getting a glimpse in my day-to-day life of who Jesus is, and that ultimately that's my goal, that I want people to, when they come in contact with me, to better understand Jesus, to see Jesus. That's really what Platt's getting at here. Am I living for God glorification? That how I use my body, the things that I do, the, the things that I'm trying to accomplish, the ways that I talk to people, all of this stuff, is it done in a posture that points people to Jesus? Is that the goal? Am I a conduit? Am I a lens or whatever for people to see him? Am I Christ's ambassador? Or is my life self-gratification, self-righteousness, that I want people to see me, that I want people to glorify me, to continue the language, that I want people to cheer me, that I want them to see me? I think David Platt is right, that this is the choice uh, that we face. What are you going to choose then becomes the question. What is your choice? Do you live to glorify God Right, John Piper famously, well, not John Piper, it goes back much firmer, further to Jonathan Edwards, that we live to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
Because here's the fact, friends. This is what we don't get our hands around. Living my life to glorify Jesus brings me the greatest joy. It brings me to what Jesus called abundant life. That is the answer. So often we think that we have to give up true life by following Jesus, and it's just not the case. That it's actually the self-glorification. It's actually the selfish and sinful desires. It's actually living for myself that bring upon the, the hardships of life. It is when I am freed of that and I'm running after Jesus and I'm living for him and I'm pointing people to him and I'm following after him and I'm obeying him and my life becomes about Jesus. John 10, 10 says it is then that we find life and life to the full, that we find abundant life. So often we think Jesus following him is just about like uh, getting to heaven one day. It's this fire insurance. And so I give up the good things of life now so that hopefully I at least get the eternal. I'll give up the temporary for the eternal. But it's actually opposite of that. We are told that when we follow Jesus, it opens, it becomes a doorway. It opens the door. It is the pathway to abundant life. And so I want to ask you just one question as you're driving in your car or listening to the podcast or whatever. Do you actually believe that's true? If I asked you, What is the pathway to abundant life, to the good life, to all of that stuff? Not the easy life, uh, but what's the pathway? Is the answer obedience to Jesus? Is that the answer? Or is it self-gratification, just enjoying uh, whatever this world has to offer? That's the question we all face. God glorification or self-gratification? That's the choice we make. Uh, each and every day. You could also find us online at 1160hope.com and on the social medias, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. So I want to end the show with some encouragement. I want to open up God's word for us. And I want to end with just some encouragement about what do we do now? How do we live our lives? And I want to go to John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is such an important passage primarily because it is Jesus praying for his disciples and his future disciples, all believers. He's praying for you and for me. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is about to be arrested. Jesus is about to be crucified. And he takes time to pray for his disciples and his future disciples. And so I think we should really take notice and say, what does he pray for us? What does he pray for them? Uh, I think it becomes really important. Jesus, it says here, uh, in John chapter 17, verse, verse, verse 15, he says, well, let's start in verse 14. He says, I've given them that being your, his disciples, your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. So what is, be, what is Jesus praying there? What is he saying? He's saying that his, his earliest disciples and his disciples to come are not of the world. And we feel this. I think we increasingly feel this, that the world pushes up against us. But what does Jesus say? God, protect them. Heavenly Father, protect them. But also... I'm sending them. Friends, you are a sent person. You are sent into the world. You've been sent into the world with a mission, with a purpose. 
And Jesus prays, sanctify them so that you may be sent into the world. Here's my question for you. Do you see yourself as a sent one, as a sent person? As a follower of Jesus Christ, have you been sent? Yes, you have been sent into the world with this message of reconciliation. As Christ's ambassadors, Jesus prayed on the, on the eve of his death. He prayed, Lord, protect them. God, protect them and sanctify them because I have sent them into the world. You have been sent into the world, friend. And I want to encourage you with that as we close out our show today. Matthew chapter 28, the great, the great commission, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he says, and know that I am with you always. Jesus says, I will be with you. And then Acts, the book of Acts at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is sent and amazing things happen. This gets lived out, but understand what happened in the early church. They were sent in, they were sent into the world and they were brutally uh, treated. They were dismissed. They were killed, but also they started a movement in the world was changed. The gospel went forward. But then verse 20 comes and he says, for my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So Jesus is praying for us. And what does he say will cause the world to believe in him? The unity and the love of the church. He doesn't say, give them always the right words, give them right right doctrine, all of that matter. But Jesus says, it is the unity of my followers under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It is as Christ followers uh, are united under the lordship of Jesus Christ, displaying self-sacrificial love, displaying a love of neighbor, displaying a humility that Jesus displayed, a unity within the church, not a uniformity, but a unity. He says, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Friends, unity is not something that I don't, I'm not sure that can define or describe the church right now. But Jesus prayed that we would be unified under his lordship as we are sent into the world with this message of reconciliation, with this message of good news. Are you a unifier? Think about your own church. Think about the Christians around you. Are you a unifier or are you sowing disunity in the church? How do you reconcile that with what Jesus prayed here? And do you live as a sent one? That that is your perspective when you leave your house, whether you are a plumber, a teacher, a pastor, uh, a stay-at-home parent, whatever you are, that you are a sent one. I'm being sent into this world that God, that God has called me to, this specific environment. I'm being sent with a mission to go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. Friends, as we close out the show today, Live out your mission. You are Christ's ambassadors. You are a representative of Jesus. You are a sent one, sent into the world with a message of love and reconciliation and hope and life. Just as you have experienced this love of Christ, you are now sent into the world. You have been sent by Jesus to go and make disciples. 
as his representatives. How are we doing with this church? God, he didn't put out a plan B. The church is plan A. The church is plan B. We are to be unified under a mission and under the lordship of Jesus to go and make disciples. My prayer for each one of you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, is that you will take your mission seriously, that we would be a unified people sent into the world by our Heavenly Father. And know today, friends, that you that, that what fuels us to do that is the love and grace that you have experienced in Jesus Christ. If you're struggling today, know that he promises to be present and know that he has already defeated sin and death and that eternity will not have that. And then go into the world, be a sent one. Go into the world with this new, uh, with this good news. Jesus says in the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have taught you, and I will be with you always. Really good news. May we be men and women uh, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ who lived that out. Well, again, thanks for joining us today. I'm grateful that you spent some time with us. Aubrey Sampson will be back with us tomorrow. Top five list, grinds my gears, and a bunch of other things. But until then, we hope that you have a great Thursday evening. Again, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.